This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Isabel Hardman. Isabel, can you start by giving us an update on the Tory leadership contest? You've written on a blog for Coffee House this morning that it could be the biggest week of the contest so far. Yes, and that's because ballot papers are going out to members this week and they are likely to open those ballot papers and in the majority vote quite swiftly after that. And so this is the week where Liz Truss obviously wants to maintain her sort of dominant position in this contest and Rishi Sunak hopes to catch up with her. There's one caveat to that, which is that members, I mean, members might be uh, a bit more disorganised, they might be on holiday, uh, they can also, though, change their votes if they have already voted by post. They can go online and vote and the party will only count the vote that receives the closest to the deadline But that does rely on Rishi Sunak still coming up with something that will change their mind, a game-changing moment. And he hopes, I think, that uh, his tax pledge today, that he's going to cut the basic rate of income tax from 20% to 16%, will be it. He's saying, you know, it's the biggest tax-cutting promise for 30 years. One of the problems, and this is something I've written about and something Fraser's looked at in terms of the sort of number crunching as well, is that this does take the former Chancellor onto Liz Truss's turf. I mean, she has really spent most of this campaign hunting for as yet undiscovered taxes, which she can promise to cut. And for him now to make this announcement sort of mid-campaign does look a little bit as though he's spooked by the level of traction that her tax-cutting arguments have had versus his sound money argument. Now, he's done a broadcast around this morning arguing that actually the that's that's obviously not true he says because his point is that he already had a tax cutting plan when he was chancellor that he had plans to cut income tax by the end of this parliament anyway this new pledge is to cut income tax by the end of the further by the end of the next parliament and that the only way you can realistically make these tax cuts is by having sound management of the public finances not to announce pledges which would in, include more bo- involve more borrowing now. But as I said, sort of strategically, it does look a little as though he's uncomfortable with the progress of his campaign, which would be an entirely realistic assessment, given not only is Truss ahead in the polls, you're also getting ambitious figures within the party now coming behind Truss because they think she's going to be the person in the position to give them a job, frankly. So um, Nadeem Zahawi, Uh, This morning in The Telegraph has endorsed Liz Truss. Perhaps that wasn't too much of a surprise. What was more of a surprise was Tom Tugendhat endorsing her at the end of last week, which I think a lot of his One Nation friends were a little bit amused by, suggesting that perhaps as much as he's enjoyed the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, he, uh, he may feel that it's time to move on. James, Rishi Sunak is behind Liz Truss, and as Isabel says, Tory members can change their votes online, but as Katie wrote in her cover piece last week, they tend to be older and so might be less inclined to do that. How do you see the course of the contest playing out over the next few days and weeks? So I don't think anyone is going to to go online to change their vote over a kind of 
you know, a minor difference in performance, if you see what I mean. I don't think anyone, I don't think Tory members are going to watch all the hustings and decide that one candidate was 5% better than they expected and so go online and change their vote. I mean, the only circumstance in which people will change their vote is if there was some, you know, massive revelation or something like that. I don't mean this second vote uh, or this ability to vote online and countermand your initial vote. I mean, I mean that will have a minimal effect unless there is some kind of news story so big you can see it from space kind of thing. I mean, one can put too much emphasis on that. I, I think one of the other big questions is how quickly do people vote? Previous contests, as many as kind of half the ballot papers have essentially been returned straight away. If that would happen in this contest, that would obviously be be good for Liz Truss, given where the numbers currently appear to be. I think the only argument about why that might not happen is that things have happened quite quickly to get to this stage. I don't, I mean, I think that, I think that, you know, even a couple of months ago, people were not necessarily expecting a leadership contest in August. And while because the end of Theresa May was a more drawn out affair, I think people had thought longer about who they were going to vote for, for, for leader. And Isabel, turning to Labour now, this morning, Lisa Nandy, the shadow foreign secretary, joined the picket line in Wigan. This comes after a shadow minister was sacked last week for doing the same thing. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this, I think, is is quite significant, actually, because Keir Starmer made very clear that he didn't want front benches to be joining picket lines and then obviously had to sack Sam Tarry, although the, the, the very clear line from the Starmer camp was that it wasn't so much the picket line that led to the sacking as it was the fact that Sam Tarry then did all these unauthorised broadcast appearances and while doing so promoted himself to Shadow Transport Secretary when he was uh, Shadow Transport Minister. But Lisa Nandy is obviously much more senior than uh, than Sam Tarry was. She's obviously a former leadership contender herself. She has not dissimilar politics to Keir Starmer anyway, so she's not, I wouldn't say, you know, she's not of the hard left or anything like that. She's much more of the, the sort of soft left tradition that, uh, that, that Starmer's from himself. That's what makes this really interesting, that she's turned up on a, um, a picket line in, in Wigan today and it's obviously been, been tweeted. Now, it's, it's, it's not a rail strike picket line. It's a CWU picket line, which may or may not have some difference but I think it points to the the fact that within the Labour Party there is discomfort at the way in which this is all playing out and it's not just discomfort from as I've already said the sort of you know the more left-wing MPs and members it's also discomfort from those sort of in the in the soft middle who still think that Labour should generally be a party that um, pays homage to its uh, trade unionist roots. And then there are those who just have a pragmatic view, which is if strikes are going to be one of the big stories of this summer, which they obviously are, and, you know, huge amounts of frustration from people whose plans are just you know, falling apart as a result of the strikes, huge amounts of frustration from, from the workers who who feel that their below inflation below inflation pay rises are going to put them in a in a really difficult spot does labor really want to make that story about internal labor arguments or does it want to make it about what the government is doing and so far the 
attention that Keir Starmer has been getting, and the leader of the opposition always gets limited attention anyway, but the attention he's been getting has been largely focused on internal rows, not the government. And, and, and that's not a place that anyone in the party, regardless of their view on these strikes, wants to be. I think there's an interesting point that Isabel makes about that it's not a rail strike, which is this. The railways are effectively under public ownership right now. And so therefore, that is going on a picket line of people who a Labour government would have to negotiate with. BT Openreach is a, is a private company. It's therefore, there, there is a difference there, I think. I, I think that Keir Starmer's point is that, you know, the kind of, if we all remember that clip of Ed Miliband saying strikes are a sign of failure. And I think he doesn't want to look like they're endorsing it. But I think there is a slight difference here because if you appear on a picket line on, on what one might term a public sector strike, that is essentially, I think, I don't know whether Isabel would agree with me, but that strikes me as essentially an, an basically saying that the government should offer more generous terms to those workers, which obviously has implications for the public finances. I think turning up in a strike which involves a, a private company is different because that doesn't imply anything for government spending. But I think, I think Keir Starmer won't want to kind of rescind this position. But I also think that they were quite careful and we've discussed this on this podcast before to say that you know sam tarry wasn't sacked for being on the picket line he was sacked for then doing all these unauthorized in inverted commas media interviews from there and so i don't i don't i mean look i would be beyond shocked if there was any action taken in this instance but i think isabel is right one of the things that's going to become very difficult is that when inflation is as high as it currently is these negotiations about pay just to have a very different feel to them than they would in, in, in normal circumstances. And I, I mean, there is this other layer of complexity here, which is public sector strikes, you, you can argue that taking a position on that is essentially has an implication for the public finances, right? Which is, if, for example, nurses or teachers were to go on strike, and Labour politicians were to back them, that would imply that there would have to be more money found for their pay by, by logic. While as it is, I think it is a slightly different thing in some of these private sector companies. And James, finally, the first ship carrying grain left Ukrainian ports today. This is under a new deal brokered by the UN. What does it tell us about where the war in Ukraine is at at the moment? So I think, I think the kind of big question is how much grain gets out of Ukraine can it have an effect on on global food prices, which are rising rapidly, in part because of the, of the war in Ukraine? I think there's also another interesting question coming up here, which is, I think the Ukrainians are clearly preparing some kind of counteroffensive in the South. And I think that there is an awareness that with Europe's energy issues, there may well end up that Ukraine needs to make some progress, I think, in terms of reclaiming territory i think it because i think without that there is there is just there is just a danger that as russia you know uses its energy le- leverage in the autumn and the winter that you know but it becomes harder and harder to keep kind of european unity together on this question because countries are are, are, t- are taking such a kind of economic and societal hit from it but you know i think if ukraine makes some progress then i think that slightly shifts the argument about where things go, how much more support should be supplied. I think we are we are also seeing at the moment in terms of this Ukrainian counteroffensive, which appears to the groundwork for which appears to be being laid at the moment, the difference that 
more advanced Western weaponry is making in terms of Ukraine's ability to hit Russian logistics and potentially cut some Russian forces off from being resupplied. Thank you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you for listening.